0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Coatsworth. Welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. This week, I'll be looking at why global stock markets have just had their worst day in nearly two years. We'll also be chatting about takeover activity in the tobacco and property space and why e-commerce companies have something to worry about. Laura Souter joins me on the podcast this week.
0: Hi there. The UK continues to be fascinated by the property market, but we could be at a turning point after several years of soaring prices. So I'll be talking to Guy Harrington from property loan group Glenhawk about what he's seeing in the market.
1: If you've ever wondered how analysts come up with buy, hold, or sell ratings, and how they create share price targets, stay tuned for an explanation on how this works. Now, Laura's also got some important information on scams, which featured in the Queen's speech.
0: But first up, so let's look at what's been happening at markets this week. So, Dan, what's been going on?
1: Uh, well, more bad news, I'm afraid. Oh, no. Yes, yeah, you know how it works. <laughs> it's been pretty rubbish year to be an investor, to be honest. So it's um, desperately looking for some positive news. So we had the US Federal Reserve put up interest rates. Uh, the market initially was quite relieved that it wasn't as aggressive as perhaps it could have been that only lasted a day. So then you had more fears over inflation and possible recession. And, and then came Monday 9th of May, was the, the saw the global stocks experience their worst day since June 2020. Now, there's lots of reasons why investors are sort of, sort of worried at the moment. Higher interest rates, the rising cost of living, potential slowdown in the world economy, the war in Ukraine is still happening, new COVID flare-ups in China, uh, there's definitely signs of a weakness in consumer spending. And also there's sort of growing concerns that businesses might stop investing as much as they were. So actually, just as we're recording this, the, um, there's some new figures out on US inflation numbers for April, and it, it saw a slight dip from 8.5% in March to 8.3% in, in, in April. But actually, markets are expecting the, the sort of the inflation figure to drop to 8.1%. So Actually, those, those dreaded inflation pressures are still there, really. So, I think mean, just overall, you know, stocks have had a pretty tough time in the US. They're down between sort of 17% for the S and P 500, 26% year to date for the Nasdaq index. But actually, the FTSE 100 in the UK has done relatively well. It's only down three percent, and you've seen that recently. The index is full of commodity producers. Uh, which are benefiting from higher prices. And also, I guess, defensive stocks, companies that sell things that we buy, no matter if the economy is doing well or or not so well. Um, And also, it's full of big dividend payers. And that's obviously one way to get a form of return on your investment, um, even in a sort of a bleak environment. So, I mean, Laura, are you, have you been putting more of your pocket money into the market while it's been depressed, or are you just crying at home?
0: I feel like after that, I'm just crying at home. <laughs> I'm ready to sell everything and get in my bunker. Yeah. There's got to be surely some reasons for positivity. Give give our, give our listeners a bit of a pat. Well,
1: you could argue that inflation is close to peaking. We don't know, but we, it, it's gone up so much already. You can take that view. Uh, if you look at things like the UK retail sector... Some of these share prices are down 40%, 50%. Um, the market is pricing in what it thinks is going to happen, namely that consumers will be spending less. All of that bad news already in the price. So it might only take some, fig- some companies to sort of say, yeah, yes, it's tough out there, but we're actually we're holding up, we're holding our own, for them to see a big relief rally. Now, I'm probably too early to sort of call these things, and it's impossible really to time the market. But... I would say a lot of bad news is already priced in now, um, but equally that you know there's plenty of gloom you know, sort of <laughs> expected in the months ahead. So, it, what what is the catalyst to get the market moving upwards again? Um, and I think at the moment consumer confidence is just getting worse. And, and, and in that sort of situation, I think at best we could see a sideways move in the market. But uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. But you know, at, we're, we're big fans of long term investing on the podcast. Um, if you've already got investments, just stick with them if you can and just hopefully ride it out. I mean, you know, this two years ago, we were sort of talking about massive drops February and March in the stock market. Didn't take long for that to sort of recover again, particularly in, you know, outside of the UK. So yeah. and in
0: terms of that consumer spending point, I think from the personal finance side, what we're seeing is, a lot of low-income families hit by the cost-of-living crisis, but actually probably a bit of a divide in the nation. And there's some people that are still doing very well, still being able to put away money to the side and can absorb those cost increases. So when they might have a little bit less money, actually, it's probably not going to stop them spending on nights out and on big holidays and things like that. So there's probably a bit of a divided nation, isn't there, when it comes to consumer spending?
1: I think so. And you know, There's certainly still a group of people who saved up money during lockdown, and they're still sitting on that cash. So even if times get hard and those bills are going up every month, they could potentially dip into it. It's whether psychologically they want to use up that money, or they might be thinking, it feels quite nice to have a lot of this sort of cash buffer. So, um, yeah, it, but equally sort of lower income earners who perhaps don't have cash savings and are actually finding life hard, you know, it's no wonder that they they were going to be spending less. So it, 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 we saw some figures um, in recent days for some of the big online companies in America. Now, Amazon is sort of talking about um, life is getting a bit harder. eBay and Etsy. So this is you know, the auction platform, and, and Etsy sells sort of crafty sort of stuff. Um, they both sort of gave very weak guidance. You know, and so this is sort of raised the question. You know. Is the world falling out of love with online shopping? I don't think it is. It's just that we've had two years of spending considerable amounts of money via the online channel. Now people are thinking a bit more about it. So um, Shopify and Wayfair also names linked with online stuff. Both of them saw their share prices fall heavily last week. And it's all linked to the same thing. You know, how much will the consumer spend? Uh, are growth rates slowing? I think. You know, I think we know the answer to both of those, really.
0: So what else is going on in markets
1: then? Well, there's a bit of takeover activity, which seems to be a sort of a common theme at the moment. Philip Morris the um, Cigarette Company is in talks to buy Swedish Match. Now, this company doesn't actually make uh, cigarettes. Its main products are stuff like nicotine pouches and, and chewing tobacco. Um, also, in the property sector, we've seen two deals in the last few days. One is that Shaftesbury... Um, which is a big London West End landlord, uh, has made an approach to merge with capital and counties. Um, and if they came together, they would own a sort of big portfolio of uh, lettable space in central and west London, places like sort of Common Garden and Soho. We've also seen um, LXI REIT make an offer to buy secure income REIT. Now, you may not know who those are. They're both real estate investment trusts. LXI owns things like hotels and car parks. Secure Income re-owns Alton Towers theme park and now I'm interested. Uh, <laughs> a few hospitals and Manchester <laughs> Arena so what is it's quite interesting sort of um it's sort of quirky sort of uh, assets but you know they, they seem to sort of you know, car parks and theme parks yeah you can see that there's logic in putting those sort of things together in one portfolio but you know I think you know, against all this backdrop it is really interesting to see the deals still happening.
0: Yeah it's interesting that there is still that takeover activity despite the talks of a recession um also interesting that there's a lot of activity in commercial property space, because obviously that was hit a lot during the pandemic and lockdown.
1: Yeah, I think everyone was sort of predicting the death of the office block as more people work from home. While that's going on, the residential property market has been soaring. Lots of people that are looking to move house or you know, there's not actually a great availability of uh, properties on the market. So Laura spoke to Guy Harrington, who's the chief executive of Glenhawk, which provides short-term loans for property buying. Now, they talked about the outlook for residential property and whether the cost of living crisis might actually bring that uh, property rally to a halt.
0: So anyone who's been following the property market over the past few years knows that it's gone pretty crazy. So what's happening at the moment with house prices so far this year, Guy?
2: Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one, Laura. It's, um, we're, we're in quite a, a bizarre time, I think, um, when it comes to the house prices and the housing market in the UK. I think, firstly, if you look... Uh, the COVID situation. And when that occurred in March 2020, it was looking like the housing market was going to get hit extremely hard. Uh, Transactions weren't able to go through, surveyors weren't able to go out, and the whole market would essentially shut down. And I was forecasting um, quite significant drops in the market back then, and certainly drops when furlough ended and everything opened back up. Uh, however, I was, I was completely wrong, and uh, we are where we are today with record house price growth month on month that doesn't really seem to be slowing. And um, in my mind, 1% a month growth isn't sustainable. However, when you look at the demand and supply and how the government is constantly missing its uh, house building targets, then really there's no sign of it slowing down, which is sad for many that either want to get on the ladder or... They want to uh, to progress on to buy another home and the demand's too, uh, too strong to require that property, so they're overpaying. So really, I mean, going back to your, your words there, it is a crazy market at the moment. Um, I, I'd expect to see some slowdown with certainly the cost of living crisis is going to start to hit. Um, there's going to be more debt put on credit cards. Uh, there's going to be more leverage uh, in people's household financing and add into that with the cost of the inflationary pressures with Ukraine and then also the slowdown that we're seeing in China, which uh, is going to affect the UK property market. And at the moment, we've got three large macro events which uh, are going to affect our our island as such, which uh, in the past, I can't really remember too many issues apart from the global financial crisis, which um, all came to a head at uh, in the perfect storm, really.
0: Yeah, and that, that cost of living crisis, um, that's got to have a big impact on the property market later this year. I mean, you obviously touched on some bits there, people um, struggling to afford stuff, getting um, more debt, but also um, the Bank of England putting up interest rates, which is then going to push mortgage rates up from this like record rock bottom that we've seen. So um, do you think that that's likely to have a gradual impact on the property market or do you think there's going to be a kind of a bit more of a boom and bust type cycle to it this year?
2: Yeah, I I, I got asked this the other day and I I personally think the the effects, we're going to feel it. it, I mean, there'll be another price cap rise, I'm sure, uh, later this year and interest rates are going to head where we think they are. Probably not as aggressively as was forecast and all the data I'm seeing from the investment banks is that uh, they're going to go up clearly, but they need to go up cautiously um, due to the cost of living crisis and taking that into account. Um, but we need to look back and remember that during Covid, with so many people moved properties, um, got cheap mortgages, well, incredibly cheap, almost free money at the time, and they're going to unwind in the next two to three years as those fixed rates start to end. So you could end up being in this storm next year where you've got your cost of living going through the roof, and that's really only heading one way, uh, and I can't see the Russia-Ukraine situation resolving itself that fast to uh, to stabilise prices. So you're almost going to end up with this pinch point, I think, after winter next year, when you've had a period of probably four months of those that sadly won't be able to afford their bills if they're in that situation. Uh, there'll be some forbearance from the the energy providers, um, but then you've got the, the the mortgage rates increasing. So you're going to find people remortgaging from the cheap rates onto a higher rate, and um, that's gonna that's gonna bite. And there is an argument that people will just spend less Uh, and with inflation, obviously you you spend the same, but um, you get less for your money. So it's really going to be quite interesting times, but personally, I don't really see it biting until probably Q1 next year uh, when those lockdown savings that were built up uh, over that period of 18 months uh, are spent, credit cards are are built up and then we're going to start to see some pressures on the housing market, I think, but perhaps only in the space where, the remortgaging is a bit of a hit, maybe uh, too over leveraged at the start. The mortgage lender perhaps gave them very flexible um, lending. I think that's the, the area it's going to hit within a certain price range, I think, because clearly there's some parts of the market will be able to absorb the inflationary pressures and the remortgage as well. So, yeah, Q1, Q2 perhaps next year is, is where I can really see something happening
0: and what have we seen play out in the market in terms of regional differences so i know in that initial kind of race for space as it's been called um lots of cities lost their appeal particularly london as people wanted things like gardens maybe and slightly more space um during the pandemic are we still seeing that play out or now more offices have returned and people are having to go back to the commute has that switched a bit
2: yeah, well, I suppose I could comment on two points on this really. the We do um, quite a lot of reg- regulated bridge loans for homeowners that are moving from one property to the other and we bridge them the purchase of the new property while their old property is essentially selling. So we can see a, a fair bit of data on this and you're right, Laura, during the uh, pandemic there was a lot of moves out. Um, we were mid-office move and we were even thinking, well, do we even need an office? Um, but we've kept one and that's all worked out. But What we saw was a lot of people move out and Surrey, Sussex, East Anglia, and so on, um, deeper into Essex if they lived in the city, for example. But what we're seeing now is a bizarre trend of it almost reversing. And clearly, prime central London and London as a whole wasn't very attractive for several months. There was talk of house prices running off here. London's going to be a ghost town, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I think when you start to see the mainstream press talk about getting back to the office, that clearly encouraged some more to come back after lockdowns ended people came back to london they enjoyed going out again going to the bars going to the theaters seeing friends and so on so i think it's got its appeal back um but certainly it is not at the level it was before um and just speaking as a as a business here with 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 the team that we've got we're relatively small with 50 people here so uh can only comment on what we see and that's new recruits coming into the business especially the younger generations are saying I want to be in the office five days a week now. I don't want to be at home anymore. I want to experience the culture. I want to be here. And I'm saying, well, hey, we're only on three days in, two days off. So you can come in five and I'll probably be sat in there doing something. But uh, you don't need to. So um, you're almost seeing a turnaround uh, from those that want to complete remote working to those that actually want to come in and have culture. Um, But as long as they've got a flexible workspace, then, um, then I think they'll continue coming into town. So I suppose in short yes, you're seeing people come back, but not the massive rush and exodus that you saw when everybody was leaving during COVID.
0: I know we still seeing, I know, kind of during the pandemic, for example, selling a city flat that had no outside space was a pretty hard sell. Are we still seeing trends like that? Um, have people's preferences shifted permanently even if they are kind of coming back into cities they still want more space or more outside space
2: yeah yeah definitely i mean we're don't get me wrong we're still seeing that happen um prime example the other day apartment in canary wharf they were selling that and moving out down to hampshire on the coast um their rationale for it want a garden a bit more space uh, and they've got, they've got children they don't want to have a 50 square foot balcony in, in canary wharf and that works for them so we're still seeing it um and if you look at the the house prices in the in the regions especially southeast there's uh, the the amount being reduced recently has been increasing so clearly there's a bit of slippage in demand there and that was only naturally going to happen right when markets opened back up people came back into london and uh, uh, and rethought their life choices but i think you know you're always going to get that flow of people cashing in moving out and wanting a a change of lifestyle but um Certainly, it's reversed for us at the moment. We're seeing more people coming and buying back in London, uh, as opposed to um, when they're all moving out during COVID.
0: And obviously, house price rises, if you already own a property, you're generally pretty pleased with that because your property is earning you money. Um, but for first time buyers who aren't invested in that already, it's got to be quite a hard market for them out there. And the the saving grace, I guess, previously has been really low mortgage rates, but with now them increasing, is it getting increasingly hard to get on the ladder in the first place?
2: Yeah, I mean it is. And there's there's a lot of good schemes out there to help. Um, but a lot of these privately run schemes by certain non-bank lenders and some banks actually will, they'll top your uh, deposit up to hundred percent, is effectively a second charge mortgage cloaked as a um cloaked as a deposit top up. So I, I don't really personally agree with that. I think it's it's really stretching to buy something and it's probably not the most stable form of debt to take on in, in my eyes. And and if you look at the UK in isolation, we're absolutely obsessed with homeownership there. And in my early 20s, I rented, I think, about nine or 10 different places when I was in London. And I absolutely loved it. You could move around at the drop of a hat, three months' notice, uh, it was great, you could experience other areas, and ironically, when I became a homeowner in London, uh, I, I thought, oh, this is a bit of a shame to sell it now, you've got all these costs, you can't really be flexible. Uh, maybe I'm a bit bohemian in in, in that mindset, but uh, I, I do think that compare us to Germany or Switzerland or even France, we are obsessed here with owning homes and obsessed with increasing house prices when, for me, owning a home is having security, I think, and that's what a first-time buyer wants, of knowing They've got security of tenure they can't be kicked out and it's, it's a stable home for them and um the mindset in the uk of always trying to make money off property well, i can't really see it ever ending which is clearly going to put pressures on first-time buyers sadly um but i'm all for home ownership as long as it's done in the right way and um they're not taken advantage of by some of the predatory um, second charge advanced lenders that are out there and there are some good ones but there are some that um, are just doing it purely to make a large profit off the first time buyer.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. For that it was really interesting. So we've had a request from a listener called Lindsay Smith to talk about broker ratings. Lindsay gave some examples of stocks where the target price is wildly different between brokers and also asked whether the house broker was paid to exaggerate prospects
0: so Lindsay wants to know about the time frame for hitting these price targets and also whether there's a ranking system for brokers who tend to get it right versus those that don 't get it right so often so Dan why don't you start with a bit of an explanation of how analyst forecasts work and how they create these stock ratings
1: yeah so there's two main types of forecasts from analysts and these are people who work for investment banks or stock breakers and the first is the earnings forecast so they might have um, been given some guidance from the company in question. If not, sort of the analyst has to sort of issue a forecast um, based on sort of assumptions. And it's just here that they, they would study what a company does and then what they think might happen in the future. The second forecast is the price target. Now, this is perhaps the one area which I think lots of um, you know, retail investors and, and sort of perhaps our listeners of the podcast perhaps are not so sort of clued up on. So one of the key things is no one really understands how long that price target is meant to last for, i.e. when is it meant to hit it. So I think generally you're looking at a 12-month period uh, from the point at which that research note was issued. So an analyst might say you are either buy, you sell or hold or stock. So when you see price targets alongside these recommendations, it just means that the, the broker thinks, well, if if they've got a buy rating, okay, in the next 12 months, they think it's going to hit that certain price. It could be within a month, it could be within that whole 12-month period. If they think it's going to be a, sort of if they're giving it a hold rating, it's because they think the share price might either rise by less or um sort of 10% versus the or it could, you know, it rise or fall by about 10% versus the current price. So um Kind of it's just sitting on the fence, really. That's about what they are um Now you might also see things like neutral, which is kind of the same as a as a hold. And then when they've got a um, a sell rating, is obviously when they think the share price is going to fall by more than ten percent versus the current price. Now, lots of brokers use different systems, so there isn't sort of a one sort of size fits all um, methodology to what they do. But to complicate matters, there's another bit of it, and there's a second part is rating stock with Overweight, equal weight, and underweight, and and what they're doing is they're trying to sort of predict where the share price might go versus a company, um, company sector. So if they think the sector might go up by say ten percent, and uh, an individual company in that sector might do a lot better, they might say an overweight sort of rating. But um, you don't tend to see too many of uh, sort of the places issuing those sort of ratings. It, normally, it's just a, sort of the the buy, hold, or sell.
0: And are they trustworthy? Like, can investors trust these ratings or is there a secret agenda these brokers no, have?
1: I, d- I don't think you should trust them at <laughs> all. Sometimes, they, you know, they, 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 they pique my interest and they're thinking, okay, well, maybe if someone's really bullish or really bearish, I want to read what they're sort of saying. But um, I think quite a lot of the time you might find an analyst who's perhaps just too confident about the prospects for a company and... They factor in lots of extra things like, you know, what if they made lots of acquisitions? And so they, they put that into their forecasts and um, and they're thinking, okay, well, investors will probably be happy paying a higher multiple of earnings. So we'll, we'll bump up our, our sort of target price. So equally, they can actually be slow to recognize when something goes wrong. They sit there thinking, okay, things will, will be fine. We'll just, we won't do anything. So they're, they're very slow to downgrade forecasts here. And um, they can actually sort of be blind to, what's going on, whether that's good or bad with a business. So I think that also there's, there's lots of analysts who who they don't want to upset companies, particularly if they're a corporate client. And if they're not a corporate client, they don't upset them because they want to win them as a client. So um, if you ask someone who works in the city for their view on broker ratings, you know, I think there's a consensus view that if, if someone's a house broker, i.e., the company is employed by a company to, rep- to be representing them. And if they have a hold rating on the stock, what they really mean is sell. Because <laughs> a housebroker would never put a sell rating on a stock because they're going to get sacked from that account, essentially. So I think when you do see an example of a sell rating by a housebroker, probably one of the stronger signals that something is wrong there.
0: So it's kind of just other people's opinions that are maybe quite well informed but shouldn't be trusted any more than your mate's opinion Who's done some research into a company
1: yeah you you would you would assume that these analysts know these companies very well they spend a lot of time looking under the bonnet of them so in some ways you know i, I always find analyst research very interesting and i do read it um because i want to know if they've uncovered something or they can understand sort of the longer term picture and the potential for a business better than i can because you know let's face it you know, i'm i'm sort of looking at stocks all day for my job and there's probably private investors who know way more than i do but it's impossible to know everything about every single company so i think it's really really important to to look at these things but equally i take them with a little bit of pinch of salt in terms of explicitly saying right you've got a piece of paper and it tells me if i buy it now i could make 10% in 12 months i just i think that it's impossible to make that sort of statement with confidence
0: and one of the one of the things that our listener lindsay asked about is why certain stocks have a very wide range of price targets. So for example, AstraZeneca or BP. So um, one thing Lindsay said was, how can highly paid, highly trained folks have such radically different views?
1: Well, if we take take AstraZeneca first as an example, an analyst will be taking a view about whether a lot of the drugs in its portfolio that are going through trials will be successful or not, and whether they'll be approved by the regulator. Now, Someone who's got particularly high price targets probably thinking, okay, they're all going to get approved or the majority, and then demand's going to be brilliant. Equally, someone might say, Well, you know, I've looked at what they're doing and looked at you know the success rate for everything they've done so far. I'm not so sure that they're gonna be. So that's why you can get a sort of a wide range of stuff. Something like BP, it might just be simply down to the forward oil price that they're using in their calculations about what the price target is. But um, you know, you get a you get a. a a big stock in the FTSE 100, like these two, um, they could have twenty different analysts covering that stock. Uh, you know, and you'd think that they're all going to the same meetings, they're all having the same briefings, and stuff. And you know, just using a slightly different number in their spreadsheet can produce such a wide range. it's like, it does beg the question. You know, how can we rely on this sort of information? And you know, that's why, you know, it's probably best to just look at an average rather than sort of automatically saying, I'm always just going to look at the most bullish because that's, you know, I sh- I'm optimistic about this sort of thing. And so um, I think that, you know, earnings forecasts are really good. They can be used by the market to sort of measure the appropriate value for a stock. And, you know, investors can look at a company's expected earnings power and work out how much they're prepared to own, to pay to own its shares. And, and I think that you know, analyst models are equally quite interesting. I'd, I'd like to know what sort of growth rates you might expect from a company, but um, all of these are sort of pointers to help you with your own research. They're not the sort of the be-all, end-all sort of definitive document. And um, I think, to me, is like the one one thing. If I had to pick one thing from all of this, if someone put a sell rating on the stock, that's what interests me the most, and. If it's simply just down to they think it's overvalued, not so not so important, but if they think they found something really wrong with the company, the market is not recognized, you sit up and take notice because I've seen this and nearly all of them, the analyst has proved to be correct and the share price has fallen on its knees in the following months. Well,
0: that's interesting. That's a good tip to finish with. I think. Yeah. Um, But before we finish the episode this week, I wanted to mention something on scams, which came up in the Queen's speech this week. Um, So the Queen's speech is obviously where um, the government lays out what its plans are for the next year. Um, And as part of that, it was a crackdown on uh, people who were the victim of banking scams. So people who've listened to the podcast for a while might know that the banking industry came up with a voluntary scheme that banks could sign up to where they pledged to reimburse victims who were tricked into transferring money from their bank account or from their savings account to scammers. Um, The government clearly doesn't think that that voluntary scheme is working very well. It said that it's um, inconsistent in how banks apportion uh, reimbursements for victims, um, and also not everyone's signed up to it. And so you end up with this patchy um, reimbursement scheme for fraud victims. And actually, The last figures show that for every £1 stolen last year, only 43p was reimbursed. And when we consider that the banking industry scheme was meant to um, pledge to reimburse all fraud victims, it's obviously not working. So as a result, the government is now going to allow the regulator to force all banks to reimburse those fraud victims. Um, So it's a really good move for consumers. It means that people who are tricked by these awful people that call them up and pretend to be from the police or from their bank and trick them into transferring money, um, it means that lots of people, lots more people will now be reimbursed for that. Obviously, we need to see what the criteria is that the regulator comes up with as to um, whether you're eligible or not to be reimbursed. But we'll cover that when we get more detail on it later this year.
1: I think that's really good. I, I certainly increasingly know more and more people who are sort of, unfortunately, falling foul to scams. And, and you see that it's not only you know, it's the sort of the, the sort of the stress of um you know will I get my money back or not. It, it, it's completely changed their lives and the, you know they, they become um they don't want to do anything anymore and they're worried about every worried about more things than simply just money because and it's it's just a terrible, terrible um situation for people to be in. So anything that sort of can really clamp down on these scammers is good.
0: And the fraud has soared in recent years and particularly in the pandemic, but actually the real figures will be so much higher because so many people are just so embarrassed that they've been scammed that they never even report it or attempt to claim back their money. So um, it's a massive problem.
1: Yeah. So just before we finish up, I just want to ask you one more thing, Laura. So there's going to be some changes to the one pound coin, which I think our listeners might want to know about.
0: People love coin news, don't yeah. they? People love changes in coins. Um, yeah, so there's going to be a new design of a £1 coin, which is going to enter circulation next year. And it marks the £1 coin's 40th anniversary. So uh, Michael Armitage is going to design the coin. And it's the first redesign of the coin, of the £1 coin since the new design was launched. Um, so the new kind of anti-fraud 12-sided design. Um, so yeah, from next year, new £1 coin
1: brilliant and it'll be one pound notes back again soon (laughs) (laughs) can't see that happening. so um anyway that's all from us this week let us know if there's a specific topic that you'd like us to cover on a future podcast or someone you'd like us to interview so send us an email podcast at ajbell.co.uk thank you very much for listening and please do leave us a review of the money and markets podcast wherever you listen to it catch you next time
0: thanks a lot we